Thank you very much, Minaj. And I'm happy to be here virtually with, with all of you. Um, I have no disclosures, uh, except for one. And that is that much of what we're talking about today is uh, new material and uh, some of it's in the field of infectious diseases. So I'm not an ID doc, and it's entirely possible that I may suffer from the Dunning-Kruger effect, although I'll try not to. Um, we're going to talk about a variety of ways in which COVID-19 has touched upon patients with kidney disease as well as the development of acute kidney injury as a result of the disease. Uh, and we'll talk about some of the challenges related to dialysis, mostly logistical, some technical in patients with COVID-19. Um, and we'll also talk for a brief time on the nature of toxic exposures and poisoning related to the pandemic. So I don't think I have to tell anybody what COVID-19 is at this point, um, but if you're watching this in the future, uh, hello, we're, we're glad to have survived the pandemic. Uh, COVID-19 is an infectious disease syndrome caused by a novel coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, which I'll be calling SARS-2 because it's less awkward. Uh, it's related to SARS and uh, MERS. And most people infected with the virus will, will thankfully only have mild to moderate respiratory illness and recover without requiring special treatment. Unfortunately, what we're seeing at UMMC are those who are more ill. Um, there are a number of risk factors that might lead one to develop more serious illness, such as those who are older and those with underlying medical conditions, such as chronic kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, hypertension, and others. Um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 spreads primarily through droplets of saliva or discharged from the nose when an infective person coughs or sneezes. And at this time, there are no specific vaccines uh, or FDA-approved treatments for COVID-19, although certainly many things are in trials. Um, I'm not going to talk extensively about COVID, assuming not only that you know it, but uh, that I'm not the best person to talk about it. What I am going to talk about is something that may has been overlooked, uh, at least initially with this disease, and that is that uh, the rate of acute kidney injury during uh, the course of COVID-19 turned out to be higher than uh, most expected. Um, this is from an article in the New York Times about a month ago, and I am just going to read some of these quotes out uh, because I think they, they speak for themselves. One doctor in New York City who was not authorized to speak publicly recalled anguished exchanges with other physicians last week. You're yelling at them. You're telling them you don't have a dialysis machine to give them. You hear the intensity and the desperation in the other person's voice, the doctor said. My job was hell. The volume of patients needing dialysis is orders of magnitude greater than the number of patients we would normally dialyze, according to Dr. Barbara Murphy, the chair of the Department of Medicine at Mount Sinai. At her hospital alone, the number of patients requiring dialysis rose threefold. Dr. Murphy said areas of the country that are planning for a possible surge in the demand for ventilators also need to think about dialysis and a national distribution system. So if we look at critically ill patients, acute kidney injury is not an uncommon phenomenon. Uh, in fact, 
over half the patients hospitalized in the ICU for any cause, and this was in the pre-COVID era of five years ago, seems so long ago now, um, and 13.5% of those in a large um, multinational trial required renal replacement therapy. And as you'd expect, acute kidney injury is associated with a higher risk of death. We are seeing that in you know, COVID-19, 6 to 10% of confirmed patients overall have required uh, ICU admission. But of those 6 to 10%, 40% have AKI, uh, 40 to 60%, which is not that dissimilar from AKI epi. But what we are seeing uh, that is different is the number of patients who require renal replacement therapy, uh, roughly double that seen in AKI epi. Um, there are multiple studies that suggest kidney damage, and in the interest of time, um, I won't go extensively through the pathophysiology. Um, it's not uncommon to have proteinuria in critically ill patients, but it is uncommon to have this de- you know, degree of positivity of protein and blood in the urine, where um, 70 to 85% of patients with COVID-19 have had proteinuria, and up to 75% have had hematuria. If you look at autopsy series, we mostly see acute tubular injury, um, although there have been a variety of uh, other causes for acute kidney injury in patients with COVID that I will briefly discuss. Um, Looking at different series to estimate the risk of AKI versus the need for chronic kidney, uh, for renal replacement therapy, um, the risk of acute kidney injury has varied between, and these are mostly studies outside China, which I am focusing on because the rate of renal replacement therapy need inside China seems different than the Western world, and these data seem to apply better to what we're seeing. Um, patients uh, have had you know, you know, t- anywhere between 20 to, to uh, 40% need for dialysis overall with, um, you know, or you know, acute kidney injury rather, uh, with up to, you know, almost 70% in some of the critically ill. And the need for renal replacement therapy has been um, roughly 15 to 20% in most series. The New York series, fewer received it, um, although I do wonder whether that might be related to availability. Um, these are not that dissimilar from UMMC numbers, which I will show later on. Um, in all patients hospitalized with COVID-19 in this recent New York uh, cohort, which looked at over 5,400 patients um, who were hospitalized throughout New York City, um, we saw that still that about uh, over a third of patients developed acute kidney injury with um, one-third of that group having this you know, stage 3 or severe AKI, which generally requires renal replacement therapy. Um, The greatest predictor for the the risk of AKI was the need for ventilation. And the incidence of AKI both happened early on for some patients as well as late in the course. And it may represent different disease uh, pathologies where this might be hypotension leading to acute tubular necrosis or merely pre-renal azotemia where later on um, it might be some of this cytokine storm which is only somewhat understood uh, or other causes thrombotic microangiopathy etc 
one of the more interesting things to come out of this experience was that patients who uh, had diagnosis of acute kidney injury tend to have a sharp peak in the incidence of this um, around the time of intubation. Well, it could be said that, well, these are simply sicker patients, um, and needing intubation is a good uh, marker for very ill patients. Um, you know, many of us in the nephrology community have wondered whether this is related to some of the hemodynamic phenomena seen in intubation and known to contribute to AKI, such as decreased venous return. Uh, and unsurprisingly, patients who had more severe degrees of AKI had a higher mortality. Uh, in New York, roughly half the patients who developed high-grade acute kidney injury, um, this uh, KDIGO grade 3, um, passed on. Looking at New Orleans, um, where they saw a surge of kidney injury as well and a surge of uh, COVID patients, and we're lucky to have data from, uh, I really want to commend the New Orleans um, uh, you know, kidney group um, run by uh, Jean, uh, uh, Juan Carlos Velez uh, in that they made a concerted effort to get urine microscopy on a large percentage of these patients to help with diagnosis. Um, urine microscopy can be challenging to get at the best of times. First, you have to have the patient make the urine, then you have to collect it, and you want the fresh urine or you won't see anything. But they were collecting it under you know, isolation conditions and then had to decontaminate their microscopy room after each patient's urine was spun. So uh, my hat's off to them. Um, in their series, uh, which may be the best quality data because of this outside of biopsy series, which are going to be very few and far between. Um, they saw what they diagnosed as ischemic ATN in roughly two-thirds of cases, attributing most of those cases to the traditional risk factor of shock, um, some of them with pre-renal azotemia leading to volume depletion. Um, some other patients were diagnosed with predominantly toxic ATN, some of which were related to rhabdomyolysis or presumably nephrotoxins. Um, a number of patients had unspecified etiology, AKI, which uh, frankly is, is much of what we're, we're seeing here. Um, there are many patients who have significant proteinuria who were, were not biopsying. Um, for a variety of reasons, the most compelling one being that it is unlikely to change therapy. Um, but in those patients who are biopsied, uh, there have been some cases, both in their series and other, of patients who had evidence of de novo glomerular disease, um, you know, with collapsing glomerulopathy and some proliferative glomerular nephritis. I, I want to highlight collapsing glomerulopathy, which is generally associated, you know, associated with FSGS. Um, there have been case reports, which I'm not showing here, of this having been associated with the APOL1 genetic variant seen in many African Americans. Um, and if you're not familiar with APOL1, it's a genetic marker um, seen in patients of West African descent um, that is known to be protective against uh, trypanosomiasis. Um, However, it increases the risk of chronic kidney disease and end-stage renal disease significantly, especially if you have two um, you know, pathogenic APOL1 variants. Um, 
And it could be that this variant um, is one of the reasons why acute kidney injury is seen more commonly in patients with um, African-American uh, you know, heritage. Um, we, they also saw a number of patients with simply pre-renal azotemia, which is not uncommon. Patients who present with COVID-19 are often volume depleted at that initial presentation. Um, they're feeling ill. They've had high fevers. And uh, volume repletion initially is often the course, followed by you know, uh, slowing down and trying to avoid volume overload. There are a number of potential mechanisms for AKI, many of which were touched on by that series from New Orleans. Um, and just to, to go through a, a few um, briefly, as mentioned, many of these patients are dry on presentation. Um, they come in dry with pre-renal azotemia and then may develop shock. Um, whether this is, you know, remains completely in the realm of pre-renal azotemia, hydrated and it resolves, or you know, could go into the realm of ATN depends on many of the factors that are going on with patients. But it, you know, since many of these patients are managed aggressively um, for for hypervolemia uh, to try to uh, improve their lung function, um, this is undoubtedly a factor in many patients. Um, it's very hard to keep them euvolemic, um, although from a you know nephrology perspective, that's always what we we would suggest. Uh, ATN is seen by from these uh, the traditional causes of hypoxia and shock, but as well this you know relatively poorly understood cytokine storm may well affect the kidneys. We have these scattered cases of glomerular disease. We also have scattered cases of vascular disease with some biopsies showing um, you know microthrombi with with fibrin deposition, um, suggesting that a thrombotic microangiopathy was was happening in the kidneys. There have been some unexplained cases of rhabdomyolysis that may be due to uh, directly to SARS-2. Um, some of the more severely ill patients with COVID-19 may develop acute systolic heart failure from myocarditis, and certainly these patients can develop acute cardiorenal syndrome. But in addition, patients who have um, you know, volume overload, that other side of the coin from being dry, uh, may develop renal venous congestion, which decreases glomerular filtration pressures and worsens their kidney function. There is evidence to suggest that there may be direct viral infection of uh, SARS-2 in, uh, in the kidneys. Um, I'm not showing pictures in the interest of time, but there are some biopsy series that have shown uh, viral inclusions in tubular cells, uh, and viral RNA has been uh, isolated from urine as well. Um, how important this is as a factor in producing acute kidney injury is not presently known. Um, it'd be remiss if I didn't put on my tox hat and mention that you know many of the medications we give patients in the ICU are nephrotoxic, whether they're for concomitant bacterial diseases such as you know vancomycin, aminoglycosides, the dreaded colistin, etc., uh, or other nephrotoxic medications such as IV iodinated contrast. Um, and with this, um, many of these AKI cases that, that I'm seeing on, on the ICU service right now are, are related to, you know, what I refer to as the dreaded multifactorial. Why dreaded? Um, because as an educator, I really hate to see multifactorial acute kidney injury put on a chart without listing out what those factors are. Um, but it is true for most of these patients that they have more than one of these factors going on to produce severe acute kidney injury.
To discuss one of these factors a bit more extensively, um, I want to talk briefly about uh, angiotensin converting enzyme 2 or ACE2. Um, this is a site of viral entry for SARS-2 and um, is produced in uh, response to stimulation by angiotensin 2. It's not clear whether having more ACE2 is a good thing or a bad thing, and I want to uh, expand upon that just, just briefly because I think it may um, apply to some of the traditional risk factors seen in these patients um, as well as age as well as possibly why um, many countries are reporting men having more severe disease from COVID than are women because men typically have higher levels of circulating ACE2. Um, SARS-2 uh, uh, uses ACE2 as a site of entry and again I may be climbing Mount Stupid here, so please bear with me. I'm not an ID doc. Um, but after doing so, this facilitates viral entry. Um, and after doing so, uh, SARS-2 downregulates ACE2, both membrane-bound and circulating. Um, so that's really interesting. And one of the reasons that's very interesting is that initially in um, – SARS-related lung, you know, uh, original flavor SARS-related lung injury, um, the SARS spike, which is uh, 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 very similar to the SARS-2 spike protein, was administered to mice in a lung injury model, and it was found that decreased ACE2 correlated with uh, lung injury. It was also found that these mice were given losartan to... Um, Decrease those ACE to uh, to increase those ACE two levels among other things and had improved lung injury. So let me go through briefly the hypothesis as to why ACE two might be good and the hypothesis as to why ACE two might be bad from a kidney perspective, um, as well as an overall systemic perspective. Well, so why might ACE two be a good thing despite it being the viral entry, you know, a viral entry. Uh, site. Well, angiotensin 2 uh, you know, is known to drive worsened lung injury. Although we know that ARBs and ACE inhibitors upregulate ACE2 in animals, we're not sure how clearly it does the same in humans. This is a relatively new enzyme. It was only described about a couple of decades ago. Uh, angiotensin receptor blockers lead to more ACE2 on cells. And you'd think, hey, that leads to more viral entry, but in fact, it actually suggests less lung injury in animal models. And we know that ACE inhibitors improve pneumonia outcomes overall. Um, and Again, very interestingly, SARS-2 downregulates ACE2 level, you know, decreasing its levels. So this hypothesis says, well, if ACE2 is good, then ACEs and ARBs, which increase ACE2 levels, might be beneficial. There's also reasons to think that ACE and ARBs in COVID might be harmful. Uh, angiotensin II levels decrease in, in shock. Um, and upregulation of ACE2 might facilitate viral entry, not only in the lungs, Angiotensin receptor blockers increase ACE2 in the gut. Um, so does this lead to more fecal oral spread of SARS-2? Uh, angiotensin 2 needs to decrease ACE2 on cells, so less viral entry. Do we really want to, uh, do we really want to increase viral entry? Um, with more ACE2. Uh, and lastly, there's some anecdotal benefit, and I'll talk briefly um, about Mike McCurdy's and others' paper, you know, being used as a paper in COVID. So 
less ACE2 might be good. ACEs and ARBs might be harmful. So what do we do for patients who are on these medications chronically? Well, just about every hypertension, internal medicine, cardiology, and renal um, society has come out and said, don't stop them. And the rationale is we don't know whether or not they are beneficial or harmful in COVID. We do know that stopping these medications, particularly in patients who don't have COVID, um, leads to worse outcomes. So if the absence of compelling data, um, it's hard to overturn the decades of data that say ACEs and ARBs are good medications for heart failure, chronic kidney disease, hypertension, et cetera, et cetera. There are a number of ongoing trials. Uh, some are retrospective. Some have actually been um, reported on, and I'll mention a couple. Um, but there are some other, uh, you know, prospective and retrospective uh, observational trials of ACE and ARB use in COVID. And there are also some investigational trials in Minnesota. There are trials where patients not on Losartan are being started on it. And in the U.S. and Ireland, there are trials where patients who are on ACEs and ARBs are continuing those versus stopping them in the setting of COVID. Um, and I'm, I'm very interested to see what the results of those trials will be. Um, now, back to Dr. McCurdy's and others' paper. Well, they're, they're, uh, they published on the hypothesis that, again, angiotensin II levels are decreased in, in COVID, and there may be an anecdotal benefit to angiotensin II in shock. And I believe they've taken it the, the, the right step further and are going to be working on a trial to see angiotensin II as a, as a presser. Um, so I'll be interested to see the, the results of that trial too. Um, in some respects, it's directly against the ACEs and ARBs, um, and it, it'll be interesting to see. One, one other hypothesis is that ACEs and ARBs might be the right thing for some patients, and discontinuing it might be the right thing for others. Um, the, the best quality recent paper on ACEs and ARBs uh, came out of New England Journal a few weeks ago. Um, and this was looking at patients who had, um, you know, COVID-19 versus the, you know, the different severities of uh, clinical manifestations versus being on various antihypertensives. And um, they all crossed the midline, meaning that the um, odds ratios for severe or fatal COVID-19 were not different whether you were on ACEs ARBs or other antihypertensives. Um, they weren't different for age. They weren't different for gender. So, um, yeah, we, we don't know right now. Um, so what can you say confidently? Not a whole lot. You can say it's not clear if ACEs and ARBs worsen or improve outcomes of COVID-19. Um, it's uncertain whether angiotensin II is of additional benefit or detriment in COVID-19. And in the face of this clinical equipoise, um, patients who are chronically taking these medications should not stop therapy pending these trials because there is clear benefit for the reason they're taking it. Um, and although I've placed this into the nephrology segment of my talk, I want to say this was actually, this has been a, a major thing for poison centers as well, um, where patients have been calling and saying, hey, I hear that these drugs might be concerning or in COVID or 
flip side, I hear that NSAIDs might be concerning in COVID because they increase um, ACE2 levels as well. Should I stop taking them? And the answer right now is we don't know. Moving to end-stage renal disease and COVID. Well, end-stage renal disease are high risk for severe COVID, just like they're high risk for just about everything relative to the general population. Um, these are patients who don't just have end-stage renal disease. They're older. They may have diabetes. They might be obese. They have extensive cardiovascular disease, hypertension, etc. And unfortunately, those undergoing outpatient hemodialysis, the greatest number of non-transplanted end-stage renal disease patients in our country um, are at greatest risk for infection. These are patients who are spaced three feet away from each other. Um, you can't change those machine hookups. They're, they're hardwired in. You'd have to entirely you know, redo the plumbing in order to do so. Um, and there are too many patients requiring therapy to easily say, well, we'll just stagger them every other, every other space. It's, it's logistically very difficult to do that given the number of patients who need dialysis and the fact that many dialysis units are completely full. Um, there are also logistical challenges for our patients who say, well, I want to, you know, transition from hemodialysis to peritoneal dialysis, or I'm reaching end-stage renal disease, I want to start on peritoneal dialysis, because these access surgeries have been considered mostly elective. Um, and ironically, although they would be the thing that would give our patients the, the least risk of developing you know, uh, SARS-2, being out of the an area which is high risk, they haven't been available for, for most patients throughout the country. Uh, similarly, we know that fistulas and grafts save lives. If you have an AV fistula, not only do you have decreased infection risk, you have decreased inflammatory markers, you live longer. Um, so we don't view these surgeries as minor things. We do try to get our patients fistulas. Um, the ASN, the National Kidney Foundation, other dialysis organizations have a policy of fistula first. Try to get your patient to start dialysis with a fistula. Well, that's real hard when um, you know it's, it's considered an elective surgery. Um, so there have been a number of responses from the nephrology community, both in the U.S. and other. These are actually um, from the, the European community looking at ways to decrease transmission of SARS-2 in dialysis centers. Um, and as you'd guess, it's, it's um, pretty common sense uh, you know, things that the hard part is to make sure it's done systemically and done well. Make sure that the team knows how to use PPE, has PPE, is using PPE. If someone's sick, don't come in. Um, use full PPE when you're you know, con uh, taking care of patients who have confirmed COVID or, or PUIs. Um, for dialysis patients, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge to make sure that our patients you know, have appropriately hand and respiratory hygiene, have them wear a mask when they come in, have them do hand hygiene when they come in and when they leave, um, check body temperature beforehand, and if there is concern, um, we should dialyze them in a separate isolation room. Each dialysis unit has these uh, isolation rooms. The question is whether or not they're, they're sufficient to meet the need, uh, and we are doing other things too uh, to keep patients from one another. Some dialysis units are cohorting onto different shifts. Uh, some dialysis units have cohorted their patients into specific units throughout their network, like DaVita. Um, uh, this is a you know, fantastic um, educational graphic you know, made by one of the Nephrology Journal Club uh, you know, uh, 
the online journal club um, participants, where um, you know looking at things that patients can do to decrease their risk of SARS two. The same stuff: hand hygiene, self isolate. Let us know if you have symptoms. Don't take public transportation if you can avoid it. Always wear a mask when you're out. Um, if you have disease, let the driver know. Many times our, our patients have Medicare or other transportation to dialysis. Keep away from others in the waiting area and find a way to isolate from other dialysis patients. Um, again, different dialysis units in the area have different approaches. My understanding is that in Baltimore, DaVita, uh, one of the large dialysis corporations, has cohorted their patients into two units uh, Dr. Weir, one of our faculty, is seeing patients there, um, and uh, every two weeks he has both um, PCR and antibody testing because you know, it's, it's considered a very high-risk environment. We are very lucky in that we've had relatively few ESRD COVID hospitalizations so far, um, although the concern would be is all it would take would be you know, one or two patients uh, who aren't wearing a mask who maybe aren't that symptomatic to spread it around a dialysis unit and um, an influx of 10 or 20 dialysis patients that results from that um, you know has potential to overwhelm you know single hospitals so we're crossing our fingers that you know the the extensive steps that are being taken in outpatient hemodialysis um, are, are working and we're doing our best as as a nephrologist to keep that going um, I'm also very pleased to say that we haven't had any patients with peritoneal dialysis hospitalized here to the best of my knowledge um, Talking briefly on kidney transplant, there are fewer of them happening. Live donations are greatly down in much of the um, uh, the, the country, as well as concern over you know starting somebody uh, on immunosuppression. Um, uh, some transplant patients have been hospitalized here. I know that some have had acute kidney injury requiring renal replacement therapy. And in general, we're treating them like uh, other infections in that we're holding their MMF for azathioprine. And I, and I understand that's been uh, you know, done elsewhere as well. Uh, looking at this paper uh, that just came out in Lancet about a week ago, uh, and the incidence of transplant in general in the U.S. I won't speak to non-kidney transplants, although they see their numbers are down, but the number of kidney transplants in the U.S. from March 6th till April 10th about halved. In France, they went down um, almost to zero. Um, so we are seeing a greatly decreased number of transplanted organs, and I, I really hope this changes soon because kidney transplants save lives. Um, they're not only are patients more productive and have better quality of life, um, they live longer. So some of the issues of renal replacement therapy and COVID-19, and in a talk which is not that heavily uh, science-based, I warn you, this is some of the least science-based stuff, and much of it is based on my anecdotal conversations with nephrologists elsewhere, as well as just a hint of literature. But we're seeing patients clot 
you know, have clots in their circuits. Um, Montefiore in the Bronx is one of the hardest hit hospitals and their protocols uh, went from patients who had uh, frequent clots requiring, you know, a restart of, of CRT to every patient being prophylactically uh, anticoagulated with heparin to every patient being prophylactically anticoagulated with bivalirudin because they were having an un, un, uh, unsatisfactory level of clots despite heparin. Uh, we are seeing clotting. Um, in, in the MICU, we're trying to use CVVHDF uh, for, for each patient because it does decrease the risk of clotting by decreasing your filtration fraction, which is a, a technical issue within dialysis that leads to um, less concentrated blood being present at the end of the dialyzer and therefore less likely to clot. Uh, we are also using... Um, you know, heparin in many patients, as well as citrate, something we don't use that commonly here, uh, mostly due to lack of supplies for, for calcium, the calcium drip needed with it, and, uh, you know, some requiring ergatriban for concern of HIT. Um, we've also talked about using bivalirudin for some as well. Um, you may recall that the original God Squad back in the, from Life magazine in the 1960s um, was in Seattle, a group that determined who got dialysis and who didn't based on uh, a phenomenon called social worth, which has been heavily criticized by, well, just about everybody, bioethicists, the public, etc. Um, but the, the key thing to remember here that unfortunately dialysis is a limited resource and we have lived through an era where we are pleased that that resource hasn't been that, that limited uh, for most of our patients. Unfortunately, New York City had severe limitations. Um, as mentioned in the, the newspaper article early on, and we started thinking you know, uh, over a month ago, we, we'd better start preparing for this. Um, so uh, again, talking to colleagues at Montefiore and other other places in New York, um, you know they decreased hemodialysis frequency. Um, they split CRT such that it could be used for ten hours in one patient. You know, turn around and clean it, use it for ten hours in the next, and they started an acute start peritoneal dialysis, which anecdotally is not easy to do when you're proning patients. Um, I am aware of at least one hospital in Baltimore that has had to switch to uh, CRT for 10 hours in patients, mostly due to lack of nursing availability. It's not just machines. It's also uh, equipment and the folks to run them. Um, so at UMMC, um, I have... Uh, collected our data for the last three weeks or so just to have an idea where we're where we are and where we might be going about 15 to 25 percent of our patients with COVID-19 have required renal replacement therapy and given that we have about a 50 to 60 percent ventilated rate that's not too bad um more than half of the CRT being used in the institution is currently in COVID-19 patients uh, uh, uh only about a fifth of the uh, HD we do are in patients with COVID-19. Uh, our resource cap, just so you know, is 32 CRT machines, although right now it's 29, as three aren't working. We can do up to 11 portable patients at once, although six are usually available with normal staffing. We'd have to overstaff in order to use all of them. And these are the numbers that, that I've collected as to, to now, where you can see the number of patients on CRT throughout the institution, which is the blue line, has been... 20, but has skirted pretty close to that max of 29. 
and half or more of them have been receiving CRT for COVID. Um, the number of patients receiving HD for COVID has been lower, but has been, you know, growing slightly over time. Um, so we've also made a surge plan in order to prepare in case we see a surge of patients needing um, dialysis uh, more than, than our resources could, could handle. And um, these are surge uh, you know, criteria and a plan that Ami Patel from Nephrology, Mike Armaheiser from Pharmacy and NeuroICU and I put together. Um, in case we reach a volume of patients requiring hemodialysis above what we could support, we plan to overstaff our nurses, move to a 24-7 schedule. Currently, um, we you know, don't have routinely nurses here at night, and we don't have nurses routinely on Sundays, although the on-call frequently come in. Um, we would also try to requisition additional dialysis machines from the outpatient setting. But if we still ran out, then we'd hit the, uh, the, the surge plan where if we run out of CRT uh, or we run out of hemo for patients with CRT, we switch to that you know, PIRRT, the CRT for 10 hours. Um, if we hit our HD uh, capacity in patients who aren't in the ICU, we would try to do them as infrequently as possible for a short period of time. And yes, that means dialysis twice a week rather than three times. Ideally, patients in the hospital should be receiving more dialysis than they do out, outside of the hospital. Um, but you know, resources may not allow that. Um, and Mike put together a nice um, you know, document looking at strategies for um, controlling potassium, acid base, and um, you know, volume. And we have pretty stark criteria to change from that if we hit these resource utilizations, um, you know, at, at, uh, if we hit peak utilization. Um, our hope is that we will not, and thankfully we haven't so far. Um, I'm going to leave these up for a few seconds such that you can look at them on your own um, if you want to come back later and, and pause the talk. But uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to move on. And again, these are um, criteria that Mike has, has devised um, and that Ami and I devised, and this was distributed to nephrology and, and uh, you know, most of the critical care folks. We do have anticoagulation parameters. I do want to mention that if we, you know, if heparin doesn't work, we go to citrate, argotraban, and or bivalirudin with um, systemic anticoagulation plus citrate being the peak of what we can do. Um, so our ongoing plans, what are we doing in case we, we hit this surge? Well, we are trying to stay ahead of supplies uh, to make sure that we don't get caught flat-footed without enough dialysate, cartridges, tubing, et cetera, needed. Um, uh, Jill Parker, our dialysis nurse manager, and I are going to be working on um, taking the, um, the, the great idea from the LVAD folks in terms of remote monitoring. If we can hook up webcams to our dialysis machines, um, typically the bedside nurses are only able to do one patient at once. But if we have uh, such a need that we need to do you know, so many bedside uh, treatments that we run out of our nursing capacity, uh, one nurse may be able to take care of two relatively stable patients on hemodialysis, just as they do in the dialysis unit, with the aid of video monitoring. 
And lastly, if we run out of replacement fluid for CRRT, um, dialysate for CVVHD can be generated from HD machines. Um, and uh, friends of ours across town at Hopkins have come up with a great um, method to do so, essentially taking a hemodialysis machine and the hemodialysis concentrate from which we make dialysate um, they they uh, machined a, a connector, which then can be 3D printed, um, and then running this dialysate through the machine um, rel- in a relatively simple fashion can give you dialysate that can be turned around and used for your patient on CVHD. I'm not sure if it would be um, sterile enough for replacement through it, but if we really hit... Um, a um, you know replacement food being used for CVBH as opposed to CVBHD, but if we really hit the limit, this is something we could use. Um, so I'm going to pivot and put on my other hat and talk uh, for maybe the last 15 minutes about the toxicology experience in COVID-19. Um, the first thing I'm going to talk about are what are toxicologists? Um, we are providers that care for patient, you know, for poisoned patients. It is one of the smaller medical specialties in the country. There are maybe 500 boarded medical toxicologists. We're lucky enough to have four at UMC. Um, there's uh, Liz Hines in pediatric EM, Hong Kim and Kathy Privas in EM, and myself. Um, most medical toxicologists come from an EM-based uh, uh, you know, training uh, primarily nowadays, but you can train as a tox, a medical toxicology fellow from any primary specialty, pediatrics, internal medicine, occupational medicine. There's a psychiatrist toxicologist, a neurologist toxicologist, etc. Clinical toxicologists are even rarer. These are mostly PharmDs, occasionally PhDs or nurses um, who undergo rigorous training um, and uh, go through a um, exceedingly difficult boarding process uh, to become boarded as clinical toxicologists, and we are very lucky to have three of them here at UMMC: um, Jimmy Leonard, Wendy Klein Schwartz, and Bruce Anderson, um, all associated with the Poison Center. Um, we provide bedside care. We provide outpatient care. We don't have a clinic at present, maybe in the future, uh, but medical toxicologists do this. And we also provide remote care via the Poison Center. The Maryland Poison Center you know, takes uh, care of patients from dozens of hospitals across the state. We cover an area of roughly 4 million people. Um, hint, hint, internal medicine residents, if, if for some reason you don't want to do nephrology, you can become a toxicologist. Uh, this is the Maryland Poison Center right now. You will notice that there are no people there. That is because it is completely and fully remote. Um, you know, thanks to excellent IC, IT support and good guidance, um, after the snowpocalypse, um, you know, the leadership of MPC said, huh, we have to be ready in case we can't get there in person. And it has served us very well. Uh, in that we have been able to go completely remote when a number of poison centers have not been able to do that. Um, I should say we've taken our teaching remotely as well. So if you have nothing to do from 8.30 to 10.30 on weekday mornings, come join us. We'll learn in some talks. Uh, we do our teaching via WebEx, and uh, it is interactive. Um, many poison centers have taken on a dual role in the pandemic and become COVID call centers. This is state-to-state dependent. Um, 
Maryland is not one of the states where the poison centers have taken over this role, but in states that have, like New Jersey or Florida, their COVID volumes were actually much higher than their poison case volumes for a while, and many temp workers had to be hired in order to deal with the the call volumes. Um, to put this into perspective, um, poison centers, may, you know, depending on their size, may have anywhere from 100 to several hundred calls per day. Uh, they're getting 2,000 plus. Um, and uh, you can see here, these are data from the National Poison Data System, which aggregates all poison center data, that the number of COVID calls for a good while, uh, and these are largely information calls to the public, although occasionally they're poisonings related to COVID, um, that uh, we're, you know, we're, we're taking up quite a bit of uh, you know, poison center time and effort. Um, Maryland Poison Center has has seen a small increase in this, but you know what you can see from both our data and from national data, you know what our numbers aren't down. Um, we're seeing we're as busy or busier than we usually are. As some of these cases are are pretty ill. Um, overall, national data, there have been concerns that poison centers might see increased numbers of medications used to treat COVID or medication or uh, substances used to prevent from you know, transmitting COVID, such as, say, uh, disinfectants and hand sanitizer, and that has actually been the case. Um, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are feared exposures in poison centers. Um, when somebody takes an intentional overdose of these, these drugs, these are things that really can kill you. Um, and there, unfortunately, have been several deaths related to these medications, including the uh, notorious you know, aquarium chloroquine case in Arizona. Um, similarly, we've seen a pretty substantial increase in disinfectant exposures as well. While these are less likely to have severe outcomes, um, they still take a lot of healthcare time and effort. And it's not just poison centers. Some patients may present to the emergency department um, or their primary doctors with you know, exposures due to um, you know, disinfectants. The same is true for hand sanitizer. Um, you know, we do periodically get hand sanitizer causes and uh, calls, and anecdotally, um, it's the most common call for non-medication substances from high schools because teenagers will drink it. Um, there's a lot of alcohol in that hand sanitizer, and if you can add something that gets rid of that bitterant taste, you've got yourself a pretty potent cocktail. Please do not do that at home. Um, but uh, we have seen an increase in hand sanitizer you know, exposures um, as well as bleach exposures. Bleach is potentially more concerning. In general, we're not that concerned about most household bleach ingestions. They unless they're intentional for self-harm, they tend to have rather minor effects. A two-year-old goes crawling, finds some bleach, drinks a small amount, cough, you know, spits it out. Unless you have aspiration, um, you're unlikely to have severe caustic injury. Unfortunately, that's not always the case for all bleaches because this is a category that includes uh, very concentrated bleaches above the low percentage, you know, 3% household bleach. If you get your hands on some industrial bleach, um, which isn't being sold to businesses because they're not decontaminating as much, um, 
you know, there have been some cases where people have had um, leach toxicity related to these concentrated solutions. In addition, mixing bleach with, with acid can lead to chlorine gas, which can cause, you know, respiratory, which is a respiratory irritant. Um, and in some cases can lead to severe reactive airway disease or even death. Uh, the same is true for chloramine gas, which is, you know, generated from mixing bleach with ammonia. Um, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are, are not in, in the, in the toxicology community, we view these as very dangerous drugs. In therapeutic use, um, there's a risk for arrhythmias. Um, not only do you have, you know, cardiac potassium channel blockade, producing a long QT with the occasional patient with torsades, this is synergistic, say, with azithromycin. So being on azithro and, uh, hydrochloroquine at the same time prolongs your QT about as much as sodalol does. Um, in acute poisoning, I fear these cases. Um, the last patient I saw with hydroxychloroquine poisoning was about two and a half years ago. It was a 15-year-old who took an overdose of her lupus medications. Uh, she was coded more than five times within the first several hours after ingestion. She had uh, you know, multiple seizures. She almost got ECMO. She got just about every antidote we had to give other than ECMO, including lipids, um, and um, her potassium was 1.4 because of, you know, intracellular shifting. And what we see in acute poisoning from these drugs is markedly more concerning than what we see in therapeutic use. Um, you get cardiac sodium channel blockade with a widened QRS, VTAC, VFib, uh, cardiogenic shock. You have neuronal sodium channel blockade that leads to seizures, and you have a potassium less than 2 in severe cases. So this... Um, this was something that set up alarm bells as soon as um, the, there were recommendations to start using it, um, and we saw anecdotally that hydroxychloroquine uh, prescriptions spiked to the point where many pharmacists ran, ran, pharmacies ran out. Um, there are also challenges for addiction medicine clinics. Um, many of them have gone to telemedicine only with reduced availability of services, and this means that a patient population which is under-resourced is not able to access these as well. Um, in nephrology telemedicine, we've had enough times uh, you know, where our patients have been unable to do even phone call visits due to technical issues or can't reach a patient or maybe they don't even have a phone. Um, if patients lose access to medication-assisted therapy for opioids, they might go back to heroin or fentanyl. Um, in addition, you have patients who uh, are given a large number of methadone pills at once, so they're not constantly going to the clinic. Um, this is typically done by addiction medicine clinics in a very graduated stepwise pay, you know, process to ensure that the patient has a pattern of safe behavior before they're given a larger number of pills. Now, many people are given a larger number of pills for other concerns, um, and that's risk for some patients to abuse. Um, it is not clear how much opioid misuse and overdose is related to this, although we and others are going to be studying this. Um, a silver lining? Well, uh, it turns out that many of the precursors to make illicit fentanyl were sourced from the Wuhan, China area. So um, the UN and uh, US and uh, DEA and other um, uh, organizations have reported that there's a surge in illegal drug price because it's harder to make it 
It's harder to get it. Air traffic is largely shut down. Um, so there are higher street drug prices. The way you get the, these drugs to the streets are going down. So it's not clear which way the, the um, pendulum will swing when it comes to misuse and abuse of illicit drugs. Will we see less? Will we see more? We don't know yet. We're going to study it. Um, I want to give a, a thanks to so many people um, that, that I, I, can't, I don't have time to, to list. The nephrology online community has been on top of uh, coronavirus from day one. Um, thanks to Matt Sparks and uh, Swap Pyramith, uh, as well as so many others. Um, the toxicology commu uh, uh, community has been on top of it as well. Um, you know what I really want to help thank? I want to thank our dialysis techs and nurses who are going into these rooms, are staying there for, for hours. Um, they're doing a fantastic job of taking care of the patients. Um, Novia Singh, one of our uh, nephrology fellows, has probably seen more COVID patients than any of the faculty having been on the ICU service for over three weeks. All of our fellows are seeing these patients working hard. We salute you. Um, all of the, the uh, specialists in poison information, the Maryland Poison Center, and so many colleagues, uh, I'd be happy to take any questions.